This podcast is sponsored by Echelon. Echelon is the affordable way to get the workout equipment, the workout community, and an instructor's motivation right in the comfort of your own home. With Echelon, you can work at any time, day or night, and crush your fitness goals. And right now, for a limited time, podcast listeners get up to $800 off MSRP. To get this exclusive podcast discount, text GENIUS to 818181 to get up to $800 off MSRP. Once again, just text GENIUS to 818181. Quick disclaimer, message and data rates may apply. See terms for details. Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have uh, William Happer. He's the Cyrus Fogg Brackett Professor of Physics Emeritus in the Department of Physics at Princeton University. Uh, We're going to talk about uh, climate change and uh, perhaps some of the politics surrounding it. So, William, thanks for coming. Well, thank you very much for inviting me. Yeah, if you would, tell me a bit about your background and uh, how you went from physics to address uh, climate issues. Well, I uh, served for a few years as director of energy research in uh, Washington under the senior President Bush. And in that role, I uh, controlled all of the non-weapons research money at the Department of Energy, including uh, funding of climate and environmental work, but also uh, plasma physics, high energy physics, nuclear physics. You know, we even had an active human genome uh, activity going. And so I got to know about all of these other fields. I, I already knew a fair amount about atmospheric physics just from my own work. But uh, in the process of uh, sort of seeing what was going on with the research, I became concerned about the uh, the nature of the work in, in the climate and environmental area. It was uh, heavily politicized even then. This was back in the early 90s, and uh, it's only gotten worse since then. And so I, uh, when I went back to uh, uh, Princeton, I was busy for several years. My research group was still going, and we were busy setting up a startup company, and uh, I didn't have much time to worry about climate, but I did notice on the evening news that, you know, the uh, distortions were getting more and more with each passing year, and so I finally began to write articles and speak up, talk to people like yourself uh, about... Yeah, when you say distortions, what do you mean? Well, for example, there there's uh, there is no climate emergency, but, uh, you know, we've had years of people trying to pretend that there is one. And uh, that's a big distortion because it diverts uh, resources and uh, talent from uh, real problems that could be solved into phony problems that uh, don't exist. You know. The people that are saying that we're in a climate emergency, what, what facts are they basing that on that you've observed? They don't have any facts. You know, they will say... Good grief. Did you see there was a hurricane that was clearly due to uh, uh, human emissions of carbon dioxide? And yet, 
you know, we've had hurricanes since uh, forever. You know, the uh, biggest one on record was right about the time of the American Revolution. And uh, we certainly weren't putting a lot of CO2 in the air then. And there's no basis for that. So they seize on every event, you know, that gets lots of news. And they say this is all due to climate change, when in fact, it's completely natural. So that's one example, one of the more egregious ones. Forest fires, you know, forest fires are less now than they used to be. But now they say every time there's a forest fire, there wouldn't have been a forest fire if it hadn't been for you running your SUV. When in fact, you know, forest fires were much worse 100 years ago. And people buy it, you know, the level of scientific literacy isn't very high. And uh, people have this need for virtue signaling. And so they jump on board. What, what does it look like politically, you know, when you were helping George Bush what was the political climate around it? And how is, it is uh, ironic to say this, how has the political climate changed or warmed or cooled surrounding this issue? Like what's, what's happened in the last 10 years or so, you say? Well, under Bush Sr., when I did my first stint in Washington, the uh, Rio conference, environmental conference took place. And uh, Mr. Bush felt driven to participate in that by you know, pressure from Al Gore and his friends. And so he signed the U.S. up to lots of, you know, dumb commitments that probably damaged the environment, but we signed up anyway. And uh, now we're stuck with them and uh, it seems to get worse every year. So someone has to have the courage to finally say that this is all nonsense and the U.S. should pull out of it, you know, and then work on real problems that are good for people and that help the environment instead of doing the opposite. (laughs) What have you seen, uh, again, the arguments, have they changed? Have the facts that are being used changed? Or again, has it, has it been even a more complete abandonment of facts? Like, how have you seen things change, let's say, in the last 10 or 20 years surrounding uh, climate and how it's talked about? Well, I think the big change is that more people take it seriously now than in the early 90s. Uh, there were still people around who pointed out the silliness of the thing. and. Uh, we're able to do that without too much uh, harm to themselves. Now the uh, the climate movement has become so fanatical that it, it's dangerous actually to speak up. I get regular death threats from people, not just to me, but to my family, to my children, even my grandchildren. You know, oh, no. killer of the planet. You know, you, you shouldn't be allowed uh, in uh, civilized society, and so. Uh, you know, that that has gotten much worse. Uh, and, uh, you know, you have, you know, all of these experts today, you know, great climate scientists, you know, Leonardo DiCaprio or Greta Thunberg, you know, and uh, school children, you know, who are boycotting classes every Friday to save the planet. It's like the children's crusade, you know, in, in the Middle Ages, you know, that... Uh, Cynical people take advantage of children, brainwash them, and, and, and get them to uh, push their agenda. So what What are some of the issues that you think are problematic versus not? Like, um, again, CO2 emissions or habitat destruction, you know, deforestation, uh, use of alternative fuels, you know, out of the different facets of climate itself and what we could or could not do about it, which, which issues do you think are actually important and are supported by data? Well... Habitat destruction is a problem, and that's being made worse by the climate establishment because, you know, in Europe in particular, the politicians demand that uh, 
biofuels be used. So what does that mean? It means that uh, in Indonesia, you cut down primeval forests, habitat for orangutans and other, you know, unique animals, and you plant, you know, oil palms, you know, so you can ship palm oil to Europe and the Europeans can feel good about it, you know, while they exterminate orangutans or they, you know, strip cut forests in the East Coast and along the Gulf of the United States to ship wood chips to England so they can burn them in coal plants that should be burning coal, but they're burning wood chips. And in the meantime, they leave this wasteland along, you know, the, the Gulf of Mexico and along the Atlantic coast that used to be a forest. Now it's bare, eroding soil so that uh, people can save the planet. So what's, what they're actually doing is just the opposite of preserving the environment. They're making the environment worse. Well, so in terms of deforestation and, again, habitat destruction, what needs to be known in order to, I guess, you know, do things in the right way? You know, what, what tweaks should be made? Well, they should leave the forests alone. They don't need biofuels. It's a terrible way to get fuels. There's still plenty of oil and gas left, and uh, we should use that wisely and responsibly while it's there, and that's going to be there for a long time. And in the meantime, we should be figuring out how to run civilization when fossil fuels run out, which will eventually happen. You know, nobody knows quite when. It will be far into the future. But, you know, nothing's infinite. So we need something, perhaps nuclear power, perhaps fusion energy, that uh, uh, will keep civilization going for thousands of years, you know, long after fossil fuels are gone. So now now's the time to work on that. Yeah. Yeah. In terms of um, the people that are the most, you know, vocal about climate change, what about research into, you know, different types of alternative energy? Is that... Is there enough being allocated for it? You know, why is there not a worldwide consortium where a bunch of nations put in, you know, several hundred billion dollars to research the heck out of, let's say, wind, solar, geothermal, nuclear, et cetera? You know, is the funding coming along with the the cries for, you know, for help? Or is are there just, you know, cries that we're all going to die and the funding is not coming along with it? There, uh, I think we are spending research money uh Wisely in some areas, for example, I think uh, monitoring the environment with uh, satellite instruments has been a very good investment, and uh, I'm very much in favor of that. Yeah, I think research on things like, you know, wind and solar, it's, it's a waste of money. You know, that this is, these are very mature technologies. There's not a lot more that you can milk from them by, by more research. So and as for things like Control fusion, which I'm enthusiastic about. The problem there is, is not so much money. It's, it's a lack of really good new ideas. So, uh, this may be a solvable problem, but it, it won't be solved by just dumping money on it. What you have to do is to make it possible to recruit the brightest and most talented young people of every generation and, and have them work on this and, Sooner or later, one of them will have a really good idea that will solve the problem, but it will be an accident. It won't be because some bureaucrats in the government have said, go solve this problem, and here's lots of money. That's not how revolutions in science and technology are made. They're made by individual investigators who are 
have a brilliant new idea, often by accident. So do you think that um, could solar or wind ever be competitive with fossil fuels after a lot more research? Or do you think they're just doomed technologies? Well, if there are no fossil fuels left, you know, solar and uh, wind look a lot more attractive than they do now. (laughs) But uh, the problem with both of them is they're not very reliable, you know, the wind bloweth as it listeth, it used to say in the Bible, and, and that's true. Sometimes the wind doesn't blow, and the sun sets every evening. And all of these uh, renewables have to have backup power plants, which are fossil fuels. And so you don't really save that much in terms of emissions of CO2, which, by the way, I, I don't think is a bad thing at all, but you don't save it because there have to be these backup coal plants or especially natural gas plants that are ready to spin up, you know, when the sun goes down and when the wind stops blowing. So it simply doubles the capital cost. It more than doubles it because, uh, you know, the renewables have to have a very complicated grid structure to support them. They destabilize the grid, so they increase the cost of everything. And so the only people who benefit are the investors who get rich from subsidies, which the, you know, the average taxpayer pays. So the the average person is, is being uh, taxed, his standard of living is being lowered uh, in order to make purveyors of wind and solar rich. Why is that a good thing? So, um, I mean, from what I understand, solar has come down in price quite a bit, and so has wind. But, but you said you need a full, you know, a complete backup. Um, do you ever think again that solar or wind will approach on a kilowatt per hour cost basis, you know, coal, natural gas, et cetera? No, I think if you put in the, uh, the real cost and include the intermittency, which is a huge cost, there's no way they can compete. You know, the, right now there's, there are these phony cost numbers, which uh, ignore the fact that this is not very useful, uh, power source because it's intermittent and you can't depend on it. Um, are there any other alternative processes that you think could take over from fossil fuel? You mentioned nuclear, you mentioned, um, well, I don't think you mentioned hydrogen, but I mean, do you, do you think there's anything promising that in the future may work if supplies of coal, oil, gas, et cetera, really dwindle tremendously? Well, uh, certainly nuclear would work. Uh, there's huge amounts of uranium and thorium around, enough for thousands of years. The big problem with nuclear is... Uh, Cost, you know, it's very expensive to build nuclear power plants. And, uh, you know, there are many reasons about it. for that. I don't think it's a fundamental problem. I think it could be solved. But people are not addressing that seriously. And the other more serious problem is uh, that it's uh, connected with possible pr- proliferation of nuclear weapons. And uh, that's a very serious issue that has to be considered. So uh, those are the two main problems with traditional fusion energy, it, it's the cost of building the plants and uh, concerns about pr- proliferation. I think both of those can be solved, but, but no one is interested in solving them. If you look at the far more distant future, you know, the, the idea of uh, fusion energy is very attractive. You know, the, there you uh, are using light elements like deuterium or lithium, you know, to uh, get energy out by fusing light elements. And the, that's much, much harder than uh, fission energy because you have to make the uh, fuel very, very hot and it, you have to contain it. But uh, my guess is that it's a problem that will eventually be solved. I don't know how it will be solved. I don't think the 
current ways that we're trying to do it are very promising, but at least we have good people working in the area. And uh, you, you have to hope that one of them, usually it's one of the younger ones, will have a really good idea one of these days. And uh, all of a sudden, what would seem to be an impossible problem is, is sol- solvable. It won't happen, however, ever if you don't have people working on the problem. I've been working too hard and not working out enough. I wanted to get in shape, but I don't have time to get to the gym. Echelon brings the gym home to me. So right now, for a limited time, podcast listeners get up to $800 off MSRP. To get this exclusive podcast discount, text GENIUS, G-E-N-I-U-S, to 818181 to get up to $800 off MSRP. Once again, text GENIUS to 818181, and message and data rates may apply. See terms for details. What are your thoughts on um, transportation, you know, vehicles that are electric vehicles versus gas-powered? You know, is there a true side-by-side comparison with all the inputs, all the externalities? And if so, how does it fall out for electric vehicles versus gas-powered? Well, I don't think electric vehicles make very much sense unless it's a toy for rich people. You know, they, uh, they're very expensive. You know, they take a long time to charge up. They run on electricity that's usually generated by a coal plant, so they're probably increasing emissions of CO2, although as I mentioned before, I think in emission of CO2 is probably good for the planet. So I, I think it, it's, uh, it's, it's just more virtue signaling. It, it really is not helping people. It's, making, it's impoverishing the average person because they can't afford electric cars. They don't work very well. You know, during the uh, last blizzard in Virginia, you know, there were a lot of electric cars uh, stuck on the highway there, you know, because uh, it's very hard to heat an electric car. You know, I, I can't think of a worse way to use your battery's power than to keep you warm in a blizzard. <laughs> so there, there are just all sorts of problems with them. You know, Henry Ford competed with electric cars when he got started. They were very popular around 1900. Uh, little old ladies had an electric car in the garage and crank it up for, you know, go to Sunday meeting. They had all the problems in and that they have now, you know, they, you had to charge them up. You know, they, they had a very small range. And so, uh, so Ford cleaned their clock, you know, it was, uh, you know, the Model T was just so much better than any, uh, any electric car out there. And that's still true. Yeah, today. Yeah, you brought up something important. You said when there was um, cold weather in Virginia, a lot of the electrical cars. So what is the issue with uh, producing heat for the driver using electrical car versus gas? Well, the point is that, you know, with a uh, relatively small tank of gas, a hydrocarbon fuel, you have tremendous amounts of energy available. You know, it's compact. It's easy to burn it. With an electric car, that same energy has to be stored in an enormous battery. And uh, the battery doesn't work all that well when it gets cold. Batteries are uh, very temperature sensitive. And so if you're out on the road, it's freezing cold. And uh, the last thing you want to do is, is to squander the stored energy in your battery by turning it into heat. You would like to turn it into motive power to drive the car <laughs> to wherever you would like to go. So electric cars have to be extremely economical in their use of energy. You can be much more wasteful with an internal combustion engine because it has so much more energy available. 
And so to waste that energy on heating your car is not a good idea. And uh, it runs down the battery very quickly. And also there's, I mean, there's very little to no infrastructure in the U.S. that I've seen, at least for electric cars. Like every once in a while, I'll see like one spot, you know, yeah. in front of a grocery store, but it's, I see almost none. That, that's true. That's true. And it takes a long time to uh, get a, a charge that's worth stopping for. You know, it, it's not like pulling up to a gas pump and uh, three minutes later, your tank is full and you're on the road again. Here you're talking about a stop for hours. And then the range on electric cars, I mean, what is it currently versus gas powered? And if there's not enough infrastructure with, you know, like every, I don't know what the density of infrastructure would have to be in order to service electric cars, but yeah. it would have to be like, you know, pretty dense, which it's not. Otherwise, how could you travel anywhere safely? Yeah, all, all of that is true. And I don't know the range, you know, top of the line, Tesla is supposed to be over 300 miles if everything is working, working perfectly, which it never is, but uh, still, it's easy to get over 400 miles in a gasoline car, the, the cheapest gasoline car that probably costs a tenth of the Tesla, and it's much more convenient, and uh, you can fill it up every five miles at a uh, at a gas station, and uh, not so easy with a Tesla. So, um, I wanted to talk also about uh, the levels of carbon dioxide and other, you know, greenhouse gases, as they call them. You mentioned quickly that the uh, level of CO2 going up would not be a problem or would it be offset by other factors? Like, you know, how do you see that issue? Well, CO2 is a greenhouse gas. A greenhouse gas is uh, a gas that's uh, transparent to sunlight. You can see through carbon dioxide gas, but it's uh, opaque to the thermal radiation that Earth's surface emits and the atmosphere emits and which cools the Earth and, and uh, dumps the solar energy back into space. And so if you add more greenhouse gases, it makes it a little bit harder to get rid of that thermal heat. But the the important word there was little bit. So few people realize how really ineffective CO2 is as a greenhouse gas at current concentrations. If you double CO2 concentrations uh, and do nothing else to the atmosphere, keep the same temperatures, the same water vapor, everything else the same, you only decrease the radiation to space by about 1%. And uh, that's a very tiny amount, 1% change in radiation to space from a 100% increase in CO2. So it's a very ineffective greenhouse gas, and uh, its warming effects are, are very small. You know, I would be surprised if when we fully understand it, if the warming from CO2 is much more than one Celsius uh, per doubling, every doubling produces about the same warming. But in addition to that, CO2 is uh, extremely beneficial to agriculture, to forestry, and uh, you can already see the earth greening from the rather modest amounts of CO2 that we've already added in the uh, Satellites are able to measure chlorophyll levels, and uh, we're seeing lots more chlorophyll all around the Earth, especially in semi-arid regions where uh, uh, CO2 is especially helped. So the uh, benefits from CO2 are absolutely enormous in the fields of agriculture and forestry. And uh, even small amounts of warming, which is all CO2 can do, are generally beneficial, I, I think, Few people realize it, but uh, 
if you look at climate-related deaths, uh, many, many more people die of cold than of warmth. So it really intense cold that is the problem for human beings. It's not warmth. We're designed to handle warmth. You know, we evolved in warm climates and no problem with warmth. But it's not going to get very much warmer. The warming is going to be mostly at night. It's not going to get hotter in the day. The high temperatures won't get much higher. The low temperatures will get a little bit warmer. And the warming will be mostly in, you know, closer to the poles, not in tropical areas where it's already warm there, or CO2 will hardly make any difference. So there's nothing, there are no downsides that I can see to more atmospheric CO2. In fact, just the opposite, there are upsides everywhere you look. Well, I had heard that in general, um, the earth is actually greening in response to the higher CO2 levels. That's correct. Um, greening. I mean, so how much of a countervailing force would that be if, um, there's more plants, you know, respiring and producing more oxygen and sucking up more to carbon dioxide. Do you think that'll, will it offset increased carbon partially or not at all or a lot? I don't know why anyone would want to offset CO2. CO2 is not carbon, you know, element carbon is things like soot, graphite or diamond, that's pure carbon, but CO2 is mostly oxygen. It's 70% oxygen. So I don't know why they don't call it oxygen pollution, because that's what the molecule is for the most part. But uh, CO2 is completely natural. It's the basis for all life. We're made of CO2 because the food we ate originally was CO2 that was captured by plants and converted into sugar and proteins, you know, to nourish animals. We, well, I guess, I guess saying it a different way, um, if not saying good or bad, but if CO2 levels do rise significantly, but the planet gets a lot greener. The planet, planet yes, of course it will get a lot greener. Everybody. Right, what, what, what do you think that'll do, you know, planet-wide? Like, has anyone tried to model that and see, okay, well, that'll get us to a steady state, or what will it do in terms of CO2 and other, you know, um, other elements that are in the air? Well, the first thing that uh, it will do uh, it, it will make agricultural much more productive. And, uh, you know, in most countries, agriculture's problem is overproduction. You know, so if you're a farmer, you, you may not like the increased yields because that will drive down the price that you get for your crops because more of the crop is coming in. So there's a law of supply and demand. But in the longer term, that will mean that... uh Land that we use now in agriculture for crops can go back to uh, the natural state, you know, for wildlife, for recreation, because we don't need as much land if it's much more productive with more CO2 in the air. So I, I think that everything about that sounds good. Also, you know, more productivity, raising the standard of living leads to it's the natural way of controlling Earth's population. If you look at prosperous countries around the world, all of them are, have really a hard time just maintaining their current population levels. The birth rate is less than replacement. And uh, so that's because of prosperity. And so anything that makes uh, rapidly growing parts of the world uh, more prosperous will decrease uh, the rate of population increase. You know, I'm not against uh, population, but I think that a stable population is a lot easier to cope with than one that is rapidly decreasing or rapidly increasing. 
both of them are, are difficult to handle. So if you're to look ahead over the next 20 or maybe even 50 years, based on what's actually happening politically and what's actually happening, you know, scientifically in the world, what do you think things are going to look like in, again, like, you know, let, let's say 20 years or 50 years? What's your guess? Well, you know, it, who else it said predictions are hard, especially the future. And uh, I don't think anyone knows. I mean, I, I'm optimistic that uh, Homo sapiens really is the intelligent thinking being that the name implies. You know, I doubt it sometimes, but I'm, I'm hoping that we will be smart enough to do rational things about the world we live in, about how we treat each other. You know, the biggest problem of human beings has always been living with other human beings. You know, that uh, has been number one problem is throughout recorded history. And uh, it's still a problem. With respect to climate, I, I don't know what will solve this current craze, but I, I, very likely it will be some poor country going all the way, you know, and doing everything that climate fanatics demand and just destroying their society destroying their economy, you know, maybe it will be the state of California, or maybe it will be Germany, or or perhaps Australia. But uh, when that happens, the rest of the world will look at this and say, is this really what we want to do to our own societies? And they will decide no. And so that will be the turning point, sort of the, the crisis in this disease, and it will rapidly go away. I uh, hope it's not replaced by some other craze, but it probably will be. Well, very good. William, what's the best place for people to find out more about your work? Where can they go? Well, they can go to the website of the uh, CO2 Coalition. You know, it has uh, lots of good facts about climate. It's scientifically very sound. And uh, you can download uh, material of various degrees of sophistication some of it with differential equations and lots of graphs and some of it much more uh, verbal. And so you can pick something that you felt, feel comfortable with, but you will learn one way or another. Okay. And uh, all right. Any other resources or places people can go to find out more about you in general or your thoughts? If you Google on my name, you'll see lots of uh, hate uh, mail, for, you know, from the CO2, you know, from the climate establishment. and. Uh, so uh, there's not much I can do about that, but uh, it's out there. If you look around, you'll find uh, various uh, videos and things that I've made. And, uh, you know, some of them are pretty good. So Okay. Well, very good. Thank you for coming, William. I really, really appreciate it. Okay. Thank you. Bye-bye. Remember, before you go, supplementing with hemp CBD products is one of the best things you can do for your well-being. Get your CBD from a company that cares and offers you holistic support in your healing or wellness journey. Feel Good Hemp is giving our listeners 33% off their first purchase. You can use coupon code GENIUS33 at checkout to save 33% site-wide. Visit feelgoodhemp.org to shop now and access their free empowerment platform. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. 
This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.